On the show today, we have co-owner of AFA Galleries in New York City, Nick Leone, who you will hear say on The Art Dealer Show. The phrase art dealer just rubs me the wrong way because to me, it's like when I think of the word dealer, I either think of someone gambling in Las Vegas with, you know, some cards. I think of a card salesman or I think of drugs. Hello and welcome to The Art Dealer Show, a podcast about the people who sell art and for the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and today we have a fantastic episode. But before we get into that, do you have an event coming up in your gallery? Maybe an art opening, something going on for one of your artists, have a new print release, maybe just something that you need to be notifying the press about. Well, were you considering on calling up that sister-in-law of your next-door neighbor who's got that little office upstairs and that little pod mall where the dry cleaner is? Or maybe you were considering on tasking that gallery aid with, you know, you once went out with that guy who was working at the ABC affiliate. Maybe you can give him a ring. Stop! Don't do that! Leave this to the professionals. You need to be calling relevant communications. You got a professional art business... Put your art business in the hands of someone who professionally works with folks just like us and promotes our kind of business and knows what our pains are. You need to go over to relevantcommunications.net. Got that wrong on the last episode, but no, it's .net, not .com. No, relevantcommunications.net. Talk to Allison Zucker-Perlman, who's been in this business forever, and let her discuss with you the possibilities of what they can be doing for you. Take a card out of Danny's Rolodex. Do something right. Now back to the show. Hey, my fellow art dealers. Welcome back to the bar that we hang out in here. Call it the Art Dealer Bar for the time being. It's uh, that place around the corner from the gallery that we drift off to after we've locked the place up and said goodbye to the last collector of the day. It's a place where we can whine, complain, or even boast a little bit about something fantastic that happened today. So uh, why don't you step up to the bar, order yourself a tall, frosty glass of something that'll last you for the next hour, and uh, come back here and join me in the corner booth where we can uh, listen in on a fantastic conversation with one of our own. And for this evening, that someone is Nick Leone. Now, if you don't know Nick... Well, let me tell you a little bit about him. I mentioned at the top of the episode here that he is the co-owner of AFA Galleries in New York City. They've been around for, well, about as long as I've been in the business. And in that time, Nick has become one of the definitive experts in the world of animation art, cartooning art, American illustration, a little bit of the illustration of the macabre, you name it superheroes and the art that revolves around them, children's book illustration, you're kind of getting the picture. He is the go-to person in my book to talk to about all of those and much, much more. But before I come crashing into the conversation that we had with Nick, I want to tell you a little story about, well, the first real experience Nick and I had working together. In my many years in this business, I have been a part of putting on God knows how many art openings. Literally hundreds of them. And I've done them in cities all over the world. Moscow, Shanghai, uh, Hong Kong, and certainly, more than any place else, New York City. And of all the shows that I've been a part of in New York, well, hell, all the shows I've been a part of anywhere, uh, I've seen an incredible amount of things take place, both good and bad. I, I, I've seen a president show up at one of our openings, and, well, I've, I've seen someone beaten with their own guitar at another one. But this one, this show that took place in 2004, one that I uh, had the pleasure of putting on with my partner Daniel, Nick Leone, and his partner Heidi, this stands out in my memory. Because on this evening, and this was an evening for a show that we planned on being huge. There was a lot involved in it. It was based around a major event that had nothing to do with us, but obviously would bring in a great deal of people. This was such a big event that 
Nick and Heidi decided to rent a larger space next door to their gallery to accommodate the, the droves of people that were expected to come. What was also happening on this night, the part that we couldn't predict, was a blizzard. A blizzard that eventually would dump 22 inches of snow in Manhattan. And if you don't know New York well, that's not something that happens quite often in Manhattan. Well, anyway, the village, Soho, where their gallery is, that evening, by the time it was 7 o'clock, and it was December, so 7 o'clock, it was dark. The streets were completely covered with snow. At this point, about ankle deep. And it was quiet. That kind of quiet that could only happen around snow. No one was out and about. No one wanted to drive in this horrendous weather. If you saw a pair of headlights coming down the road, and it was a taxi probably coming to bring someone to this art opening. And that was the beautiful part. It wasn't just one cab. Somehow, and for some reason, we were inundated by people. It was one cab after another. Within about a half an hour from the period that the show was supposed to start, we had a room filled with what was easily 500 visitors. A packed, packed house. It might have been cold outside, but it was hot inside. So you're asking yourself, was it a rock star? Was it a... An international leader of some sort? Was it a... What it was was this. We were putting on an art opening during the 50th anniversary of Playboy. And at that time, we were representing an artist who at one time was a famous playmate herself. And a close, close friend of Hugh Hefner's. And with her, not just the fact that she was a playmate with a huge following of her own, but she invited all of her playmate friends. And we had a gallery filled with playmates, not just playmates, but playmates who came wearing their bunny outfits, a la the Playboy Club in the 1970s. It was a classic event. And the moral to the story is, the lesson to be learned here is, if you are to have an art opening in the middle of a blizzard, When 22 inches are being dumped on the city and no one is willing to go anywhere, much less to an art show, well, fill your gallery with a lot of scantily clad playmates. You're welcome. Hey, I'd like to welcome to the podcast a brand new sponsor. Now I know what you're thinking. Brand new podcast. Our dealer show's great, but it's new. Couldn't be much of a sponsor. Probably the company that makes the little, you know, hooks that we use in the gallery or maybe that tape we use to put the brown paper on the back of that. No, no, no. Far more major than that. Our sponsor today is a name in our business that I know you know well and have grown to trust just as I have and look to as a resource in the way that I only hope that you'll consider this podcast in the future. Our sponsor is Art World News. Art World News, who has been on a mission since 1996 when they started their magazine to serve both the art gallery and framing industry with information that is as valid and current as possible. They have not left the beat of the art business in those now 20 years. Yeah, I just only realized that as I was saying, 1996, this is their 20th anniversary. Anyway, welcome. Welcome as a sponsor. And, and I got to tell you a little something about that. When I had the idea that they might want to be involved in the show, and I called up their publisher, John Haffey, and told him what I was up to here, and then how I thought it was pretty much time that the art business had its own podcast, and that we join yet this new medium of a new time and become a part of it, he was all over it. He specifically said, this is the place they needed to be. If this is where things are going, they needed to be a part of it, just in the same way they have always done in their last 20 years of the magazine, making sure to be wherever our art business goes and be there with us, both to participate and report on it. And that is also why I'm proud to say they did a little bit of a feature article uh, on this podcast, The Art Dealer Show. And so please be looking for that in an upcoming issue. So, thank you, and welcome to the Art Dealer Show, guys. 
how about this for a little bit of contrast? My conversation with Nick Leone that I'm about to play for you in just a second, we recorded this in Los Angeles in the middle of a horrible, horrible heat wave. It was late afternoon. Things were cooling off just a little bit, but we were recording in Nick's hotel room, and I had to make a choice. A, shut off the air conditioner and melt away in a hotel room, or B, let that air conditioner ride and somehow in the future remove an air conditioner noise from a recording. That took a good solid month of me quickly learning how to be the audio engineer that I'm not. Now it's, it's mostly gone, but what comes with that process is a kind of crunching of the sound. It's squeezing it down. You'll hear it. It's a picture of two old friends in the art business enjoying the fact that they're not outside with a couple glasses of ice water in front of them, enjoying a great conversation for what has been an amazing life in our art business. You know Scott Dickin? Of course. Okay. So I'm mentioning Scott Dickin. I think he just, we were talking about who really is big with Everhart and such. And he goes, oh, yeah, I've known Nick forever. And he says, I know Nick back in the days. Like, he would pull up here, and he would describe it this way, in the limo when he was a kid and jump out and buy, like, a bunch of really neat collectible animation stuff and then go away. Yeah, that's true. That is true. I, um, when I first uh, was buying animation art, which is probably uh, my late teens, um, obviously I came up to California. I didn't have a car. So I figured, well, if you're going <laughs> to rent a car, you as well rent a hired hand and uh, had a limo. I rented, had a limo driver take me out to Costa Mesa at this time, uh, where the first uh, Chuck Jones Gallery studio was. Yeah. And I went out and uh, well, I live large, right? Yeah, but at this point, are you jumping around the country? Collecting? No, Is no, that no, a thing? no, no, no. I was, no. I was still based in New York, and I was a big animation art collector, but I'm a big Chuck Jones fan, and that really was... What got me into collecting animation art was Chuck Jones because I remember being a little kid and really obsessed with the Warner Brothers cartoons. I could tell you from the opening music if it was a Chuck Jones cartoon from things. I was probably about six or seven. And, uh, you know, when other kids were kind of outside playing, riding their bikes or playing basketball, I was, I was watching these cartoons and I was just obsessed about, about them. And so Chuck Jones was burned into my brain. And then finally... What had happened was I was, um, my family had gone to Atlantic City. The weather was absolutely terrible. And how old are you around this time? Oh, I was about 18. And um, I was bored out of my mind. So I was there and it was an arcade room and I'm playing, you know, games. So my sister comes running in to get me in the arcade room and says, uh, you won't believe it. There's a big, Linda Jones, who's Chuck Jones' daughter, is going to be here next week. I'm like, oh, that's great. Like, I'm going to miss this. She's like, no, but the woman just got all the art in, and I spoke with her at length, and she's willing to talk with you about the art. So she takes me in. The woman's name is Nikki, a wonderful woman, and she sat and educated me, you know, saying, tell, talking with me about sales, took them out. And at that point... So um, where are we in the scheme? Because I know there's a big boom in the 80s. This was about 1988, 1989. So it's like right in the heart of that time. Yeah, yeah. it was right in the heart of the time. It was uh, like a circle gallery uh, yeah. was actually what it was. So Nikki ran it. So Nikki yeah. ran it. Nikki Pally was her name. Um, is her name. So she educated me on the art. Um, you know, these are cells. This is what it is. It's signed by Chuck Jones. Went through a production cell. Was production was a limited edition cell. Explained the process. Of course, I was out of my mind and jumping th- through my skin. And um, my mom, knowing that um, I did not like being in Atlantic City, um, and it was a good sport for being there, said, "Look, you know, I'll buy you a couple of pieces." You know, so um, so that's what happened, and that started the bug. That once I had a taste of the animation and hanging it on my wall back in Brooklyn, I just became obsessed and I started to educate myself. There were very few galleries that were really selling animation art at the time, but I started to go into galleries, go into a lot of the art was unfortunately in bins, really like little um, like milk crate bins. And I would go through them and I would pull out cells or drawings that I remembered what they were from or I have a very good visual memory. So I was able to attach things to the cartoons that I grew up with and pull them out. And then a lot of people didn't even know what they had. And I just started to buy them. And just to go back to the Chuck Jones uh, showroom with Scott, it's actually a funny story. When I went in there, 
they had a lot of cells uh, by first feeling and Chuck Jones, but there was really nothing that at the time that they had when I went in there that really rocked me. And I looked around and I asked them if, if everything in the, in the showroom was for sale. They said, yes, everything but the furniture. So in the window was this big plexiglass Bugs Bunny. It was about five-foot image of Bugs Bunny laying down, and it was signed by Chuck Jones on plexiglass, <laughs> looking like a cell. It was to emulate what a cell looked like. So I looked at it, and I said, I'll take the sign. And their jaws dropped. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, you said everything's for sale but the furniture. They said, are you serious? And I said, yeah, I'm serious. So they called, they called Linda, and Linda said, no, it's not for sale. No. And about three years later... Um, I get a phone call. This is going back and forth. I, you know, once in a while I say, do you want to sell the sign? No, no. And she said, do you want the sign? And I said, yeah, I really want the sign. She goes, I think I can get you the sign. And I said, how are you going to get me the sign? She goes, well, Marion Jones loves to go to Europe. And if I'm really good friends with Marion Jones, she says, I'm going to tell Marion, do you want to go to Europe? And if Marion <laughs> says, yes, I want to go to Europe, she's going to say, I'm going to tell her to tell Chuck. All you have to do is convince Linda to sell the sign. And that's what happened. That's how I got the sign. Yeah, as a jaded a art dealer, day. by the way, I'm sensing a slow month. Yeah. <laughs> so the next, the next day, literally, I got a phone call and said, the sign is yours. And I bought it. I still have it. Where are you going to get yeah. a five-foot Bugs Bunny? You could never get a sell of a five-foot Bugs Bunny. There's no such thing. So this was perfect. Well, we are recording this in L.A. There's probably somewhere to get a five-foot. <laughs> <laughs> that was all part of this whole you know, jumping out of the car thing, probably, and the whole experience was probably a little interesting. I, I love that snapshot of you. I'm really, really glad it's true. I'm so glad you didn't say that's just a bunch of nonsense. When I think of where, you know, in a lot of ways, I think you're very unique from a lot of people in our business. But I think there's a canard that a lot of the people in our business come in as some sort of collectors. And then that's the way, that's their entry and they become interested and they build a business around that. And they're already somewhat knowledgeable because they're collectors. I don't actually see a lot of that reality, but you're a real example of that. And where I think it's really special is that I think a lot of us, as much as we've done it for a real long time, don't fully understand what it is inside the actual people we sell to that makes them tick. When I do business, I really consider myself more the collector doing the business than it is a director doing the business. And what I mean by that is I run the business like a collector would run a business. I think about how a collector would want to be treated, how I want to be treated, how I wanted to be treated, how I still want to be treated. I still do collect. So I really look at it that way. Was that the thought when you started becoming an art dealer? I mean, no, what really happened? Was Martin Lawrence the first start for you? uh, Collecting the animation was the first start just from passion. And then what happened was I just became obsessed uh, and addicted. I mean, it was really an addiction. Um, to collecting, and I started to network with different galleries. I was buying from various galleries, and then I, r- I ran into Heidi. Uh, she had a, um, an ad in a, in, a, in a, I think it was Intune magazine at the time, and she was the first person ever who told me not to buy something because what happened was I was a big, uh, I loved the Coyote and the Roadrunner. I was obsessed with the Coyote and Roadrunner, and she had one. And I was going, it was vacillating on it. I was like, you know, I really like this image. I don't know. It wasn't really in the price. It was just, the image was good, but it wasn't like great. But I didn't have one. And so and she sensed that. And I can understand that itch. Because yeah. it still be the difference between the I have one and not having right. one. Right. Yeah. And, and she saw that and she understood that. And she said to me, don't buy it. And I said, what? Like no one had ever told me not to buy something from them. I mean, that was like crazy. Now she being your friend or is that the classic takeaway? And well, no, what happened was, right, that I thought maybe this, there was this, she sold it to somebody else. Oh, did you sell it to somebody else? She goes, no. <laughs> okay, there's that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Said, Wait, that's too easy. Like, no yeah. one's ever done that before. She goes, no. She goes, I'll make, I'll make a deal with you. I'll hold on to it because I'm waiting for um, a deal to happen, which is going to have probably about 30 Roadrunner cells in it. I think they're going to be bigger, you know, probably around the same price point, and you'll have a greater selection. She goes, I'll make a deal with you. I'll hold this Roadrunner for you. And if you don't like any of the Roadrunners that come in, you can have it. But sure enough, she got these 30 Roadrunners in. I bought several of them, I think, at the time. But I just remember no one had ever said that to me. Like, no one had ever said, you know, your money's not good here right now. You know, or wait. Because typically what would happen is I would have bought it, and then two weeks later they would call me and said, hey, I know you love the Roadrunner. That's a great Roadrunner you just bought, but here's another great Roadrunner. And right. I probably would have bought the other Roadrunner yeah. as well. And then by that point, after meeting Heidi and a couple other dealers that really just listened to what I wanted, not what I had in my pocket, 
really listened to my wish list, what really worked for me, I started to work about five galleries. And then I just started to get into the art world. Um, I, you know, I went to school for music. Um, music industry was terrible when I graduated. I don't know that about you. Yep. I went to... Uh, I actually wanted to be guitar. I play guitar, and uh, I wanted to go into production. I wanted to be a music producer. So I went to school, went to NYU, and my degree was music technology. I had actually a Bachelor of Music. When I graduated, the music industry had just tanked. I was promised a job, which is the perfect job, what I wanted, of A&R at uh, EMI Records. And... Uh, this is about 1990. Yep. I was basically promised the job, but it was just a semantic thing. I had to just meet the uh, vice president at the time who was traveling and to sign off on the paperwork. I get a phone call. I can hear in the woman's voice. This is like, like two months later. She said, I have terrible news. I can't give you the job. I said, what? What happened? Like, I, she says, no, it has nothing to do with you. She said, everybody got fired. Oh, God. <laughs> they fired him and oh, everybody. Oh. Just the whole, they came in and the whole floor was leveled, like everybody. But yeah. the point was, I just totally deflated. But it's like getting a job on Wall Street, you know, in 1929. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So, um, so I totally was at a low, and I said, "Oh, this is terrible." So one of my friends saw an ad in newspaper, and knowing that I was collecting animation, and he said, "Look, why don't you work for an art gallery?" And I said, "I don't, I don't. I mean, the people I know these people. There's very limited people who are selling animation. I don't want to work for someone who I collect from. That's just." Too strange, too weird. And my friend was sort of um, the type of person who was persistent. So he said, look, he just said, here's the name of this gallery. Call them. It's called Martin Lawrence Gallery. So I called. And I get this woman on the phone. And I just was obviously trying to call just to make an appointment. And I'm getting grilled on the phone. I'm like, jeez, what a hell of a... What the hell of a place? I mean, I can't, the secretary is grilling me. I can't even imagine what the, what the director is going to be like when I go for an interview. But winds up being the director who picked up the phone. But grilled in what way? What kind of questions? Just do you asking get? me gazillions of questions. Like, I just was calling up to set up an interview. Like, have you ever sold before? <laughs> yeah. Do you know art? Yeah. Yeah. How many experience yeah. do you have? You know, uh, do you have any millionaires in your family? Yeah, yeah. almost. Yeah, the, almost that, that question. Anyway, so at the end of this conversation, my God. So she says, oh, I happen to be the director of the gallery, Alita, Alita Post. She goes, I, I like you. She said, I'll tell you what, you have no experience, but there's something about you. Come in tomorrow. Okay. So I, I go in. I have the interview. At the end of the interview, she said to me, I'm going to give you the job. She said, I had over 200 applicant, applicants for this position. People have more business experience and selling experience than you're alive. She said, but there's something about you that I feel could, would, is amazing. And I think you are a diamond in the rough, and I think you could be an incredible salesperson. She said, but I don't want you to give me an answer right now. She said, you have to do me a favor. You have to go home and really think about it because I'm making a very big commitment giving this job to you with no experience over all these other people. So I want you to at least take the, the night and think about it before you commit. Of course, not having a job, I was like, I'm going to commit tomorrow anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's what really got me into the art world in terms of selling. And then I was recruited by a gentleman who, opened up, who wanted to open up an animation gallery in New York City but knowing my reputation at the time, because everybody knew who I was in the animation art world, he's like, you'd be great to be the director. So I was about 22 years old. And he hired me to, to run this gallery on Columbus Jeez. Avenue. And I ran the gallery on 22. Columbus Avenue. And then about a year and a half later, Warner Brothers recruited me. And uh, they wanted me to work for their store in Freehold, New Jersey. Which nobody told me anything about New Jersey and Freehold. But they said it's horse country, and it really was horse country. By the way, are you doing well with this right off the bat? At that time, the gallery sales were about 5%, daily sales, to the store. By about seven months into the uh, working with Warner Brothers at retail, I broke over 50% of sales. So they said, when we open up the Manhattan store, we'd like to give it to you. And the projected sales for that gallery was to be, I remember, $600,000. And I think the first year I did like 1.6, 1.7 million. So does that go back to my original observation? Not to take too much credit for getting a beat on this, but do you think it, it, it goes back to understanding that collector perhaps better than they do? Oh, absolutely. The, yeah. And were you having that kind of success like right off the bat at Martin Lawrence? At Martin Lawrence, I had a harder time connecting because the art that I was selling, I didn't connect with. I understood it. I appreciated it for what it was, but it wasn't something that I could really say to someone honestly if they asked me the question, which was always I was afraid of. 
what would you do? What would you buy? Would you buy this? <laughs> I'm not a liar, so I would have had a hard time um, saying, yeah, you should buy this. But in but animation, still, it doesn't matter. You can oh, make a suggestion like whether you like it or not. This is, this is a great buy. Absolutely. Yeah. And at Warner Brothers, the one great thing that happened for me as well, not one great thing, but was having the experience and possibility of working with Chuck Jones, who was, of course, my hero. And um, Chuck Jones at that point wouldn't work for Warner Brothers. He had a couple of shows and they were mismanaged and he was turned off by Warner Brothers. He was, you know, Chuck Jones, he didn't have to do a show, you know, um, and if he didn't want to do a show. And if you knew Chuck, Chuck didn't do anything he didn't want to do. And so what happened was when Chuck heard that I was at Warner Brothers at the, at the flagship store, he eventually agreed to do a show because he said, well, Nick is going to be there. And the family, knowing me, said, fine, you know, we trust Nick. Peter Starrett, the head of retail, called me up on my day off at home and said, I don't know what you did, but that was absolutely incredible in sales. I think we did like, at the time, two or 300,000 that night. We sold everything off the wall. I mean, there was nothing that was left except the hooks. <laughs> <laughs> I was working on selling those. <laughs> That's really what happened. And then when I left Warner Brothers, Chuck Jones was, was not very happy and he didn't want to do any more shows and he canceled the shows after that. I don't think he did. Maybe done one other show after I left. And then Did he just not trust them with you out of the picture? I think I just became, they, honestly, he wasn't really treated very well by them. I mean, they're flying him in from California to New York, you know, they put him up like on a Friday night, you know, have yeah. the show on Saturday and Sunday flying him back out. And he was like 80 years old. And it's like, that's a lot. That's a lot for someone in their 20s, yeah, yeah, let alone yeah. someone who's in their 80s. So I think he felt milled. He felt like he was just it means to an end. It wasn't like, I'm Chuck Jones, treat me as an artist. It was, you're Chuck Jones, I need you here to do the signing because we'll sell more and then we'll put you back on a plane and send you back home. And I can almost see it from his perspective of you're sensitive to it being perhaps presumed that you would be there anyway. Right. You know what I mean? And, and, and that not feeling like he's being appreciated enough as an individual. Oh yeah, because I treated him, well first of all, he knew how I felt about him personally and professionally. So, there was nobody that was going to get to him that would in any way um, you know, mistreat him. Yeah. Or, I mean, that was just not going to happen about that. But, but you had the great advantage, too. It wasn't just you had to make some mental note of, I got to treat my star like a star. You, he was a bit of a hero, so oh, you wanted to treat him that oh, way anyway. Yeah, yeah, I idolized him, and I, still, and I still do. But I think that gets missed, actually, by a lot of galleries. You know, I've, seen, I've been a part of this conversation a lot with gallery owners where you get a nickel-dime conversation about the treatment of the artist coming in. And it's like, it's so frustrating to try to point out, don't you see the absolute contradiction in your behavior? You're trying to impress upon your collectors, your customers, that you're providing them with a star, someone who they should be rewarding with buying art at a very expensive you know, level. And yet you're trying to discount that, that same exact notion and the same movement, and I think people sense it at some point. And certainly the artist senses it, so they kind of project it. Well, I, I always go back to one thing in, in sales and in just in life. People are very perceptive. I, you know, what happens is when you're a child, you know, children will just say what's on their mind because that perception is just so front and center. They're not, their head isn't swelled up with all these things, what's right, what's wrong, what should I say. And I think what happens is as we get older, you know, our minds get more uh, you know, confused about how we should act and what we should do, and it, it clutters the perception. But the perception is still there. You know, you you, you understand what um, what you're feeling, what your gut is telling you. And if you're not genuine, I think people just get that. I mean, I, I really think that that's why sometimes you you know you have an experience with something, and sometimes you say, you know, just something. The guy's nice or whatever, or the woman's nice, but there's just something that just doesn't sit right with me. Absolutely, you can't put your, you can't put your finger on it. Like yeah. it's not something logically you could wrap. Like they walk the walk, they talk the talk, they did everything that they should by the book, but it's just just something that's off. And I think that goes both ways, by the way. Oh, and absolutely. I used to train art dealers the same exact way. I brought this up in a conversation I had with one of the other interviews I did, and I said I used to always teach my art dealers. I go. Whatever that question is that's itching on you and you're afraid to ask it, that's probably exactly the question that needs to be asked because your instincts are probably right on. You know? yeah. yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. So that's always how I've run you know, the gallery, how I've run even speaking with my salespeople. You know, and I always tell them if you don't know the answer to something, just say I don't know. Don't ever guess. That's the worst thing you could do is guess you know, because once you guess, you have a 50-50 chance. And if you're wrong, you, you can't save face. It's very difficult to go back and be like, even if it's right after, it just doesn't make you look good. Mm -hmm. You always put off just really saying, I don't know. 
let me get back to you. Well, and for a smart person, you immediately win points anyway for being obviously sincere. And honest, right. It's honest, because if you don't, you can't know everything. And sometimes you just don't, you're not going to know everything. So it's okay to say, I don't know. You know, I think it's it's more admirable and, and people respect you for that than guessing. Especially when you're wrong. That's the worst part, guessing. If you guess and you're right, it's not so bad. But if you guess and you're wrong... You're kind of in trouble. <laughs> you, just, you, you have to. You have a lot. You have a lot to explain. You know, and 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 the value of who you are kind of shifts down a couple of notches. Oh yeah. If you get caught, then it's really it's over, over, over. Yeah, exactly. Right. Even if you catch it yourself and you bring it to the client's attention, it's still not the same. It's still like, eh, no. you're a nice guy, but he 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 didn't really know what he was talking about. It's always in the back of their head. Well, you get that thing too, which is if they didn't figure out that you were kind of in nicest terms, shooting from the hip when you send it, and now you're correcting yourself or they're correcting you, they also have learned, I'm not capable of determining when this person is lying. Right. And that means I can't right. consider anything right. you're saying because I don't have that filter. That's correct. Yeah. You just water down your own, you know, uh, experiences, your own integrity, your own knowledge. It just It's all watered down. But I think I kind of threw you on a little bit of a derail there because you were talking about, though, that instinct in the context of taking care of the artist. Yes, and I think that that's also the way that you know, uh, clients pick up on that. So do artists. Just to say yeah. that. You know, one, of, one of my favorite art stories, just to tell this story, and it has to do with Chuck, actually. Um, um, it's just because it's how it happened. It was like the perfect storm in the sense that um, was, I was at the gallery at Warner Brothers, and when Chuck was in town, he would come to visit me. You know, if he was in town, unannounced a lot of times, if he would... He, he, sometimes he would call, sometimes he would just come up the elevator. We had a Superman elevator. It was in the corner of, of the gallery. And the gallery was shaped like a, almost like a um, horseshoe. What so is a Superman elevator? It was an elevator. It, it was like a glass it. elevator, but Superman was under it. And he pushed it up. So oh, it looked okay. like when it went yeah. up, it looked like he was pushing it up. Got and it. flew, you know, but you couldn't see Superman, obviously, from the first floor. It was under the elevator shaft. This is so not something offered by Otis. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, um, so what happened was I was talking to this couple, this young couple, and they were looking at a Chuck Jones limited edition. And I'm facing this Superman elevator. By the way, it also occurs to me Superman's looking up skirts. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so um, they're looking at each other, yeah. and I'm kind of looking through them, you know, because they're looking at their profile to me, and they're talking to each other, looking at this work of art. And I can see the elevator, and who's coming up the elevator is Chuck Jones. And they're talking about how they passed on that the opportunity of getting this limited edition before. They weren't sure. It's a lot of money. They don't know if they should buy it. So by this point, I'm talking to them. and they're, Again, they don't, they're just talking to one another and, and to myself. And I can see Chuck now coming toward us. And I said to them, if I can get Chuck Jones to dedicate that limited edition to you, would you buy it right now? And they said, absolutely. I said, well, here he is. And literally, they, it was like clawed cat. They like sprung like their claws, like hit the ceiling. I never saw anything like it. Like their, their spirits jumped out of their body. And he spent about. I hope five. they went away also saying, I think he just hangs around the stores and shows yeah. up every day. <laughs> I think they think there's like a big red button I must have hit or something. <laughs> Poor guys in the yeah. back went, oh shit, I gotta go out. And Chuck Jones I hope the there basement. isn't a kid this time. <laughs> and it was the greatest thing. You had to see these people. I mean, they were just on cloud nine. You know, they bought the piece. It, they had this great conversation with Chuck Jones one on one. And it was just, it was just, a, just a great. It was just all around, just a great experience. You know, there is no week that goes by to this day. Probably they don't tell somebody that story. Exactly, exactly. And I think about that story all the time because it was just, it was just perfect. Even when he walked up, by the time I was, the timing was just perfect. It was just like you couldn't time it any better. I know it's it's a negative version of that, but I kind of also wish it was one of those. Yeah, Chuck Jones wasn't that talented, you know. I mean, I'm more of a Disney guy. Tap, tap, tap. <laughs> you might want to look over your shoulder. <laughs> you know, I'm sure those moments have happened too. So tell me, so was working with Chuck Jones like the pinnacle? Working with Chuck Jones was one of the pinnacles, absolutely. And uh, and I would say the other one was working with Maurice Sendak, you know, with Maurice because that was another dream come true. I knew Maurice for about ten years. Um, and we became very close on by the last five years of his life. And literally, there was he was always reclusive, and really nobody got into his quote unquote bubble. And I was one yeah, of I've three. Yeah, I've seen that documentary. Yeah. I mean, they make a pretty good case of yeah. that. And I was one of three people that got into that bubble. Like, wow. he considered his friend, you know. And a lot of the times when I went up there, they weren't, of course, we talked some business, but, you know, 99% of it was everything else but business. And it was like, oh, by the way, we've, we never talked about this. Oh, yeah. And then we talk about it for five minutes or something, and that was it. Really getting just to know Maurice 
um, so well. You know, the person, not being the fan who loved Maurice Sendak's work, not the fan who wanted to know Maurice Sendak, the author and illustrator, but the person who just wanted to know Maurice Sendak for who Maurice Sendak was. That was incredible. That was an incredible experience. And to Did have you get a, any of that with Chuck Jones, or is this unique to this time? My, my relationship with Chuck Jones was, unfortunately, more limited. Uh, as Maurice really. living in Connecticut, I was able to venture up and see Maurice regularly. Um, Chuck Jones was really, everything was kind of through the store, you know, so, um, and phone. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have the opportunity of really getting to Chuck's life as much as I was able to get into Maurice's life. Um, I had a wonderful experience with Chuck, and, you know, um, uh, I mean, to the point where, um, you know, when I was working with Chuck, um, I was talking with Linda Jones, his daughter, about doing uh, a copy of a limited edition of Bugs Bunny and Honey Bunny getting married. How do you not want to use that for a wedding invitation? And Chuck knew I was getting married, and um, he was invited to the wedding, but he couldn't make it. Actually, they were de- uh, I think it was, they were debuting Chariots of Fur the same day. In California, a new uh, short that he did. So I was talking about the, the wedding, and he hits me on the shoulder. He goes, "He's producing cartoons that late." Yeah, he did. Wow. It was actually a suggestion that I had for Warner Brothers because we. They were, I always had a presumption that, like, somewhere ten years before he passed on, that well, they had no, they had no. Someone else. What happened was animation was just there wasn't just a lot of animation. There was just not a lot of animation for sale, you know. So one of my suggestions was, why don't you get Chuck Jones to direct some cartoons? What do you mean for sale? You, you mean literally as the, the yeah. animated product out yeah, on the market the product, available? Exactly. Uh-huh. And about only about fifteen percent of animation is actually sellable after production anyway. But then you take it from all the Warner Brothers art that had been destroyed through the years. But are we talking about sales? You're talking about the actual product of the cartoon? Sales and drawings. No, the sales. I'm talking about the actual physical sales and drawings. So it's kind of like do a cartoon so that you can have yeah. the byproduct of yes, the animation. Exactly. Material. Absolutely. Wow, I never even thought about yeah, that. Yeah. So I had, I had presented that to uh, Steve Felton at Warner Brothers. I think. Yeah. And Chuck Jones did. So he did Chariots of Fur. It was the first Coyote and Roadrunner cartoon in 30 years, I think, he had produced. Um, something crazy like that. Was there um, any kind of cynical bias, though, in the animating collecting market? Of, no. You know, this is being a cartoon that was made simply to sell us cells? No, but I don't know if it was presented. <laughs> Warner Brothers advertised it like that. It was well, just... It was, they're definitely not going to hire me for was, the advertising was, department. But yeah. It was, here's Chuck Jones' first cartoon in 30 years, Coyote and Roadrunner, and it was actually traditionally animated. And if you want to buy a, a Coyote and a Roadrunner, well, here's yeah. your chance. So in that conversation, though, if, if talking with him about in my wedding, he hits me on the shoulder and he goes, wait a minute, what do you want to do that for? My wedding gift to you is I'll draw Bugs and Honey Bunny getting married, and that'll be my, my wedding gift to you, and you can use that for your wedding invitation. And that's what, I, that's what he gave us. And you still have. You still cheapskate. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And uh, uh, anyway, so we had that sort of a relationship. You know, um, unfortunately, like I said, I didn't have, because of the geography, I didn't have the opportunity of seeing him on a regular basis or as often as I would have liked to, um, like I did with Maurice. Kind of interested with Sunday. I mean, I saw the documentary and I've heard him interviewed a number of times. It's been like three interviews with Terry Gross, I think, over the years. And what was his take, though, on the, you know, the turning of the byproduct of his artwork into an, another thing, another collectible? And, I could see him having very specific opinions about oh, he was very specific. the idea of people are going to collect you know, my, my artwork in a gallery context. I don't think he cared about that. I think Maurice cared about doing the books and what would be would be. He didn't really care what people thought about it. So it's kind of half my thinking. I was thinking because I know the focus is the books, but I wonder if he thought at all that that was a distraction from it or no. even a not a Fully appreciate. He only, he only let things happen that he felt he wanted to have happen. Well, that was clear. Um, and but he didn't have any specific rationalization other than the well, this other stuff is fine, but it doesn't matter. No, I think he did the books because he wanted to do the books. And the books were really for himself. No, I mean the artwork, uh, the gallery part of it. The gallery. No, I don't think that he liked commercialism at all. Of his in in general, I yeah. think he was very careful of that. Like he did not like the idea of art expo. Yeah, and and at the time, Maurice was. You know, anything commercial, he didn't want anything to do with anything that was commercial with his, with his characters. First of all, he didn't need to. Um, secondly, um, he was very protective of his characters. You know, with stepping into that, we had to be very careful not to be those art dealers, you know, quote-unquote, because he had an opinion about art dealers and uh, about the art world and the art market. He was also, was also a collector, so he also had his dealings with people in the art world. Uh, so trust had to be built up, and it took a long time to have that trust. 
And I think that's why for him having the relationship with me personally specifically was so important because it was basically something he needed to have as a foundation. It had to be trust. If he didn't trust somebody, um, it just he wouldn't work with them. Life was too short. He didn't need it. He didn't need the money. He didn't need the headache. He didn't want his characters to go, you know, to be, uh, you know, commercialized like that. He didn't want to be commercialized like himself like that. He didn't want to be seen as, well, how come Maurice Sendak is suddenly selling his his art? Does he need the money? And people think various things. Oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't even thought about that. Yeah. So I think that he he didn't you know verbalize all these things to me, but I think all these things went through his head. And not that he cared so much about what people think, because he didn't. But at the same token, I think he didn't want to deal with stuff if he didn't need to. He was streamlining his 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 life. He was streamlining his his whole way of thinking. Um, he wanted to enjoy life, uh, and he didn't want the BS. But, and I think he saw the gallery world as BS. A lot of it was BS, and people in general is BS. He got burned by a lot of people, personally and professionally. You know, one day it was really funny. We walk in one day, and he's yelling at the on the phone. This person, not not screaming, but yelling. And he, you know, he hangs up the phone. And we we just walked in, and Heidi and I look, you know, look at him. And Heidi said, Whoa, "Wow, that was some conversation." He goes, "Yeah, that was my attorney." And uh, she said, "Well, if that's your attorney, you should probably get another one." He goes, "No, I like yelling at him." <laughs> <laughs> he's good at being yelled at so he, said, he, he, he takes it from me that's why I like I enjoy it <laughs> so that was Maurice I mean that was just how he was and, and I'll never forget one day I walked in he was in a studio drawing and painting and he said to me I want to show you some new work for a book that I'm working on and I believe the book at the time was um, uh, I think it was Higgledy Piggledy Pop I believe was the book um, and I walk in and he's showing, you know, literally taking out the original art. I mean, he's got it on his board and he's taking it from his side of his desk to his board and he's showing me the work and he's saying, and I, I just will never forget how he looked at me and he just said, what do you think? And I said, Maurice, what do, you mean, what do I think? It's, it's incredible. I mean, it's your work. I mean, you work, you know how I think about your work. I mean, I, I idolize you as a person, I idolize you as an artist. I just think you're incredible. And he and he looked at me like a little kid. And he goes, "Really? Are you are you do you really mean that?" And just the way he said it almost broke my heart because I realized that he was really being sincere. He really didn't know if I really was just saying it to say it. But he like turned in before my eyes into this little kid, which when so many people were afraid of him because of his big roar and his big voice. They would never think that there was that side of him. But I saw that side of him. And he allowed me to see that side of him. And that was just so touching. And yet, sad. But then I also realized, you know what? That's what motivated him to be Maurice Sendak. He never said, I'm Maurice Sendak. Whatever I do is going to be great. Or whatever I do, people are just going to buy. Or people going to... He, he angst over it. Like when you hear stories about Dr. Seuss and even Charles Schulz. They didn't get to a point where they just became fat cats with their careers. They really angst over their work. They had mm-hmm. to push themselves through it. Um, and that's exactly how Maurice was. You know? And it was that, that feeling that made him Maurice Sendak. You know, never really feeling maybe fulfilled 100%. Maybe feeling like I could always do a little bit better. Even if it was the greatest thing, we could look at it and say, oh my, you know, where the wild things are, what a great book. Like, you know, it's just one of the greatest books of all time. It, it didn't matter to him. Yeah, but that kind of thing always haunts any artist. Any you great know, artist. You, any, yeah, at least any great Successful artist. Successful artist. But anybody who's had a one definitive thing that they're forever noted as being, you know, that always haunts them too, which is, you know, you get an aspect of the, all right, I'm forever getting credit for this one thing, but I'm not even that person anymore. And I'll right. give you a quick example. It's like, you know, we work with Bernie Toppin, right? And I once had this conversation with him. You know, and, and we were talking about him getting frustrated with the way a lot of interviews go. And he would say, what's frustrating is, is they're, they're asking a question to a person that doesn't exist most of the time. So they're, they're going, it's not that they're asking me about music from a long time ago and now I'm doing something else. They're asking me about something that I did when I was 17 years old in some cases, and I'm now a man in my 60s. And he says, 
I'm not that 17-year-old anymore. I can't even relate to it. Who is? Right. You know, anybody of any age that's beyond that knows when they think back to that. It's almost like an entirely different person. And I think that's like the same thing for painters, too. You know, it's like, yeah, I did or, that book or decades musicians ago. Musicians or yeah. artists or poets or right. any, anybody. I mean, any of the arts, yeah. I think it's, it's that way. And you get this irony, too, or this of, you know, any artist that you get to see, because I'm not going to say all artists produce art to communicate, but the ones you know of do. There's a reason why they put it out in the world. And there's this dichotomy of they have this real drive to communicate what's in their internal experience to the outside world, yet they work in solitude. You know, unlike musicians or anything else, painters specifically, sure. it's this quiet thing they do by themselves, and they're in a vacuum, and they're getting none of the feedback, which is the specific purpose of why they're doing it. So, yeah, it's I think true. they're always starved for that. It's true. Yeah. But it's funny because, and you're right about everything you said, and when we asked Maurice about where the wild things are, he had a very interesting spin on it. And he said, he looks at that book not as a detriment that way in terms of artistic career. People keep going back to that book, which mm-hmm. a lot of people would. They think uh, like a character actor, you know, you know, you, I was an F troop and I'm always going to be that guy, that colonel in F troop, no matter how many you know, movies I go into that afterward. Yeah. He didn't look at it like that. He said that book a lot was, he called it his lucky book. And he said it was his lucky book because he made so much money at an early part of his career that allowed him the credibility to do all the other books that he wanted to do that normally maybe wouldn't have been published. Uh, so it's very interesting yeah, yeah. that he looked at it that way in a positive light that allowed him to do the other books that he wanted to do. And that's exactly what he was able to do because once at that point, he was Maurice Sendak. And whether you want to go back to where the wild things are or not, he was able to do all the other books that he wanted to do about his brother and other things that were just very personal to him. So that was a beautiful story. I'm, that's great that he could appreciate it that way. Because right. you know, some artists would go... Yeah, well, curse it after a while. Right, right, exactly. You know, like, yeah, I'm tired yeah. of hearing about Warrior Wild I did wild that book things. once, and I spent the rest of my life exactly. listening to editors tell me, why don't you do wild things again? Right. It's like yeah. Eric Clapton with Layla, I'm sure. You know, he probably he doesn't want to hear another request for it, to hear him play Layla again. Well, let me loop you back to the art business aspect sure. of this, you know, because... Is that what this is about? <laughs> <laughs> what I meant by that is, I keep on thinking about this. There is a difference between the... This is a very cool thing. I'm a big fan of it. I know a lot of other people are a big fan of this. And then translating that into, uh, I'm going to just say the word that's coming to mind, commodity, and like a, you know, an, a gallery product that has a worth to it. And that's a whole other animal. You're still going to get faced with this challenge that very quickly I have to create a value for it. And it has to happen fast, too, because you know I'm not dealing with an artist that's, 25 years old, and we're going to spend the next 10 years building this up into something. I'm catching a guy in this one brief opportunity. For all I know, he's going to come to my gallery once, and we're going to do one show. You know, The way Heidi and I run our business, that's why we also don't work with a lot of artists, because yeah. we want to be able to get behind those artists 100%, get to really know those artists, um, work with those artists. And our belief, and it's worked, is when you give 100%, you get 100% back. You know, there's a lot of galleries that we look, you know, when we look at them, what artists they say they represent, which is ridiculous because there's like a phone book. I mean, like sometimes I think that's the artist and I realize that I'm only in the A section. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, that's incredible. Like, it's just, it's just no way you could represent that many artists and really give your all to that many artists. It's just impossible. But there's a lot to that. I've actually been to a number of galleries where I call them art expo galleries. You know, it looks like they walk down the aisles and took a little bit of this guy and a little bit of that guy. And I'm frequently saying to the art, you know, the owners of the galleries, you know, people come in from off the streets and they already feel very disempowered. You know, they don't feel qualified to be making a lot of judgments in a gallery environment. And they really look to you to signal them on something that to indicate what is of value. And what you've effectively done is, you, 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 by putting everybody up there, you've kind of done the equivalent of shrugging your shoulders and going, oh. Right. Yeah, you, You're confusing your you, audience. You like dark colors? You like light colors? Right. You, like, you like animals? You like sunsets? I don't, you know, pick one. Right. Yeah. No, you're right. It's <laughs> Versus, absolutely right. And, and, and I'll give you an example of the wildly other side of the spectrum and why it really works. There's a lot to it, but one of the key reasons is Peter Lick. There's one artist in there. You know, you're in Peter Lick land. And it's, if nothing else... You know, even though it's a cell phone gallery, it's all my chips are on this artist's number, period. 
I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but at least it's I believe in it that much. Right. No, you're absolutely yeah. right. Because it, because I think if you're not focused and your your clientele's not gonna be focused. And it's also just shows that you have no direction. And I think people are looking for you as a gallery to make a statement in the art world. I mean, they're looking to you in that sense. Whether they buy from you or they don't, you need to just brand yourself as you and stand behind your brand as who you are. Um, and then you think you need to be clear. You can't be like, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm this way today. Maybe I'm that way. Oh, yeah, I could sell this today. Or, you know, and it's not about the money or any of those things because I don't, you know, we've had plenty of opportunity to sell artists that could have made us a lot of money. But if our heart isn't into it or it's not our, the vision of the gallery, we always steered clear away from it. And we still do. Yeah. So getting back to the Morisunda part, yes, you know, here it is. You got this challenge and you got to go rolling with it. Um, you know, he pulled. Um, uh, we had the largest show in his career, art show. And it, again, it was based on trust, but I'll, I'll never forget, we were sitting with him, I was sitting with him, and he had, one of his passions was opera. So he created the storyboards for the opera, and we actually did create an opera, Real Wild Things, our opera. It was a big production. It seems so obvious now that I in think about it. In 1979, it was yeah. 1979. And he's never did anything with his opera work, like never. Like, he, he had it in his possession, he kept it. And he had all the opera storyboards and a lot of opera work, uh, studies, character designs, costume designs for the opera. And I was sitting with him, and he had this folder open. And he was looking at it with his head down, you know, intently, hand, hand like, um, head in his hand. And he's looking at this work. And he looks up at me, and he said, well, either you're going to get this or it's just going to go to the Morgan Museum or a museum one day. And he looked back down at the art, and he took the folder and he handed it to me. He goes, you know what? I'm going to give it to you. And that was just, that in itself was just such an amazing thing because it was his baby. It was his, his it was like the last part of who he was on paper that he felt comfortable enough to hand, literally physically hand over to me entrusted me to put into the show. And, um, to sell. To sell. You know, that, that's such a wild decision because if they're thinking about that at all, he made a decision from a form of artistic immortality. Yes. And, and, and we change for something that is, you know, fleeting. I mean, and it's, what we it's sold. a moment in time and then it disappears into the ether. Right. What we sold is what we sold after the show. And whatever was, was left... He actually did will to the Morgan. Yeah, but what about that choice? I think that choice was just, he, it was about me. That kind of sums up in a lot of ways our relationship that crossed personal into professional. Just being able to do that, to, to trust me that much. Oh, that was an act of trust that's probably not parallel exceeded by that many others in his entire life. You had mentioned this before and used the um, terminology before, uh, art dealer. And it, maybe it's a pet peeve that I have, but I, I, for myself, I don't look at myself as an art dealer. The word art or the, the phrase art dealer just rubs me the wrong way. Because to me, it's like when I think of the word dealer, I either think of someone gambling in Las Vegas with you know, some cards. I think of a card salesman um, or I think of drugs. <laughs> Quite honestly, I look at myself up as a professional. By the way, if you don't see a parallel with drugs and what you were talking about before, I, I hate to break it to you. I look at myself as a consultant and an advisor and the way that um, you, you can get a consultation with anybody in a, any profession, from legal to uh, medical. Um, I take it that seriously, I think. And it's funny because it's just a pet peeve of mine, the word dealer. Just I don't know. There's just something about it that just makes it sound... Lackluster. I don't know. You know, it's funny. I'm glad you brought that up. I've always wanted to approach that as a conversation. I've never had this conversation, but it's been in my head for a long time. I like art dealer. Really? Yeah. Um, but well, I can't. You, you can use it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I came in, and that's just what the people around me in the first places I worked with called themselves. And it really wasn't until like three or four years down the line in the business that I started hearing people refer to. You know the floor salespeople as consultants, and it always ran kind of weird to me. It for one thing, it felt like it was doing exactly what you were addressing, 
which was there's a real stigma around this notion of a dealer, specifically art dealer, and that we're trying to move away from that. And it also seemed to have an elevated notion that this person is, their real function is to help you and advocate, you know, for what is in your best interest. Not that I haven't always tried to do that. I'm also not ashamed of the fact that this is how I make my living. I have what I have. I have it because I believe in it, just like you, you know. I'm I'm not selling it by coincidence. It's not like, you know, today I worked at, you know, Chrysler and yesterday I worked at Chevy. By the way, I'm not saying that you're wrong. No, 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 I understand, but I guess you can look at it like, you know, are you a garbage man or you're a sanitation engineer? (laughs) (laughs) If I was picking up trash, I I prefer a sanitation engineer. I give it to you and I don't, (laughs) I don't know anybody at all. So, but, you know, at some point what you jumped into here is you, you went from doing the animation galleries and then eventually you owned a gallery of your own. It's a very different experience. And you got to make these calls and what artists that you handle. Well, I think what happened was when I was at Warner Brothers and it just became too political, what happened was I was really working crazy hours. And it was almost like it was never enough. You know, they'd ask you to do something. As much as I put in, it was like a machine that was unforgiving. And it was just a lot of games being played. And um, I just was not a game player. So I got to the point, someone said the wrong thing to me. And I'm not that I'm like a temperamental chef, but it, it was just the straw that broke the camel's back. And I just listened to what they had to say. And I just decided after I heard the whole conversation that I took a deep breath. I made a couple of phone calls to family. One of them was to Heidi. And I said, I think I'm going to quit. And where was Heidi at this point? Heidi and I had just gotten married about maybe two months prior. But she had her own business going she had on. Her own business. Time. She had the gallery in Westchester and the gallery in the city. I really didn't know what I was going to do. Like I had, there was no plan. Heidi and I just talked about what will happen after Warner Brothers. I mean, as far as she was concerned, I had a Warner Brothers career. As far as I was concerned, she had a gallery career. About a week later or so, if I remember, you know, it's, everything is a little fuzzy from that point. I think Heidi approached me and she said, "I'd love the opportunity for you to work with me. I think we could be a great." team. So she said, but here's the rule. You know, I'll stay in Westchester. I'll come like one, one or two days a week into Soho, but I want you to run the Soho gallery. Let's try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, and, mm-hmm. and no problem. We can walk, you can walk away from it. I can walk away from it. You know, it'll be your gallery and how you want to run it in the sense that, you know, we have a basic protocol, but I won't, it would be like, you know, parents with children. We won't ever argue or disagree in front of them. If we want to say something, we'll talk about it professionally We'll come to conclusions and to uh, decisions, and we'll run the business that way. That was 20 years later. Now we're 20 years later. Um, so it worked. You know, so that's really what happened. That's, that's a that's, huge decision. That's what happened. Yeah. And it was By the way, if decision. my wife approached me with that, I probably would have said no. <laughs> no, no, I mean, really. Just you might want to take that away from the podcast. <laughs> no, she, she knows that. She, she's probably in full agreement with me. Yeah, on no, that, it, was, it was a huge decision. You know, it was a huge decision. And I think that it was also, again, I was very honored that Heidi was saying, hey, you know, here's an opportunity. I mean, yeah. it did cross my mind saying, what happens if? Like, what ifs? Like, what happens if I try this and it doesn't work? Do you put stress into your marriage? It was a new marriage. We just got married. It wasn't like we were married for five years right. and said, let me try this. This is like two months to newlyweds. There's, there's you know, adjustments just in a, in a newlywed arrangement, let alone a business arrangement. But it worked, and we never disagreed with one another. Um, like that, you know, if we had difference of opinions, uh, if we, today if we have difference of opinions, we just talk about it. So that's been wonderful. That's really huge. I mean, it's, I mean, twenty years time, really, never to have a disagreement, really, yeah. ever. I mean, I if I had a guess, I would say that's because there are certain specific core beliefs, you know, in the way that you see plus, the business. Plus, we do very, we have very different jobs, which I think yeah. is also important because there was never that, you know, her her. First of all, the physical space between her running what she was running up in Westchester and me running what I was doing in New York yeah. was a physical space thing. So she was never intruding on my space, was never intruding on her space. But also, as the gallery grew and grew and grew, she started taking on all the things that I didn't want to do, like the paperwork, the PR, the, the billing, all of that fun stuff, which I still wouldn't want to do. And let me really run with the sales. I think that's been kind of the survival of Daniel and I, too. Even though we, we work very much in tandem with each other, uh, we definitely have different sides of the streets that we focus oh, you guys on. Are, yeah. I, it's and, funny because I say yeah. the same thing to people. I say that you and Daniel are like Heidi and I in the sense that you, you have very different jobs and, and you respect each other's role. And we frequently step in of to course. do each other's jobs, but it's still not. Right. But we also respect when we do that, that the other is kind of the captain of it. Right. In a it's the pinky in the yeah. brain routine. 
<laughs> I'm not going to ask which one it us is. <laughs> so one thing I kept on expecting that was going to come up a lot in this is we're definitely going through some sort of major change in our industry, the gallery world in general. You know, and, and one can say, well, you're not so special. I mean, you know, retail is going through a big change and capitalism is going through a big change and all these things are happening. But we're, we're being put in a position to, be, to have to somehow adapt. And it occurred to me when, when I was heading out here that unlike most people in our business, I think you've already gone through this in a much more significant way than most galleries have, if ever at all. And what I mean about that is, you know, eventually uh, you had originally focused on animation. That was a really big part of your business, so much that it used to be called one name, and now it's called another, and moved from Animazing to AFA. And, you know, somewhere along the line, you, you picked up on the winds change, then you had to make this shift. I'm really fascinated by that process because I think we all at this point have to be doing that in one way or another and doing that over and over and over again. I don't think this is one move of our sales that's going to well, work. I can, I can answer that in a way that make, can make me sound like an absolute genius and Heidi as an absolute genius, or I can answer it the honest way, which I'm going to, and that is that it just changed organically. Yes, animation was changing, but Heidi and I didn't sit around and say, oh, you know, the, our animation sales aren't what they used to be. We really need to do something about it. We were just very lucky. What happened was Tom was introduced to us. I mean, he was really the first artist that was not animation that we started working with. Yes, but a subject bridge, matter. right? Yeah. It was a bridge, right, yeah. iconically. Yeah. And then the next bridge that happened was the art of Dr. Seuss, which was the same sort of idea. Mm-hmm. So both of those things were kind of happening. First was Tom, and then the art of Dr. Seuss kind of came in, um, and then we started to see. Wait a minute, you know, our business was doing okay. And then as, as we were kind of looking back, kind of like you're driving in that car, you're looking back and you're like, oh yeah, like animation is really not doing so well these days. So, <laughs> and then, you know, I started to bring in illustration art into the gallery too because it tied into all of these wonderful things. You know, comic art, you know, if someone was looking at animation cells we were selling by Bill Melendez of Peanuts, and then also we had the fine art of Tom Everhart, the Peanuts paintings, which is what he called them at the time. You know, we had this wonderful form. Well, the bridge in the middle of, well, who created all of this? Who was the, you know, the person who created uh, Peanuts characters was Charles Schultz. So obviously filling that void with illustration, with the comic art, with illustrations by Charles Schultz filled that. And then that market started to really explode for us. We saw that the people from the animation very easily were able to go into the work by Tom Everhart and very easily going, going into the work of Charles Schultz. But there was, it seemed to be a line there, because I remember coming out coming by to say hi, like in 2006. I think this is the right time. And you had just moved into the gallery on the corner. And I remember you being very specific at that time and saying, you know, we're no longer this kind of a collectibles animation gallery. We're right. We're really much more of a formal gallery now. And that seemed like a really kind of firm business choice that took place. Yeah, well, it did, because I think we, we, I think, but it was one of those things, like I said, Heidi and I didn't think about it. We didn't say, this is where we're going. We kind of just, it happened yeah. And as we were kind of pulling away from it, we looked back and said, wow, this is where we are. It's like, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not going to name names, but I still get blasts from animation galleries you know, that are friends of mine. And I look at yeah. their, their releases. And I, I won't use the word that I'm nauseous sometimes by seeing what I'm seeing, but it's just like stuff that I was doing back. It looks like 1990. Yeah. And it never changed. And, and, it's, like, and it's also yeah. the, the art form is very, you know, it's the presentation of it and everything. Um, it's it, it, the commercialism of it. It's just I look at that and say, "Wow!" Like well, I was doing that. Like that was part of what I was doing was yeah. selling, you know, Saracels. Mm-hmm. You know, like it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Not because I, I didn't believe in it, I did. But now that looking back, it's almost like you're climbing a mountain slowly, and and you don't realize you're climbing, and then you're at the top of the mountain, or you're getting close to the top, and you look back to where you were. It gives you a perspective. That you don't realize it every day. You're chiseling a little bit. You're you're going another inch or so. So in the moment, you don't really see a change. But then when you look back, you you see you see it. And I think that's exactly how Heidi and I look at our business and how it's changed. But even to this day, we don't sit around and say, "Oh, you know, what should we do? You know, to create more sales or where does our what's the next biggest thing since sliced bread? It's what do we want to bring to the gallery? What can we put a hundred percent into? And who knows? I mean, I don't. I don't have a map. I don't know. I can't say to you in two years this is where AFA is going to be. I don't think Heidi can say that either. I think we just go with the flow, roll with the punches, as they say, 
Yeah. And um, we take it the direction we want to take it. But we're also both collectors. So maybe that's part of the beauty of that is that we're not sitting around as executives making executive decisions, which we all know can work sometimes and they don't. When you're using passion and that's what you're driving your business with. Um, and it's, it's obviously very much felt by your collector and your clients who also become your family. I think that's, that's the driver and that's, that's the key to success. I think that's a that's a perfect one to end on right there. Really, thank you very much for doing You're this. Welcome. I took you by surprise. On no it problem. Too. You've only known for what? That's only because you came in naked. <laughs> <laughs>